Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In March of 2017, Allison Stanger got a concussion, which wouldn't have gotten widespread attention except for the way in which she got it. Stanger, up to that time, was probably best known for her scholarly work on foreign policy and diplomacy. But last year, she achieved a new level of fame, and it happened in a way she never could have imagined. I didn't think anything was going to happen. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I mean, before I walked out the door uh, to where we were confronted with the crowd that injured me, I was saying to someone, you know, I left my computer in the car, so why don't I go separately and I'll go get my car and meet you at the dinner? I had no clue that was going to happen. Stanger had been asked by a student group to interview a fellow political scientist, a man named Charles Murray, who is visiting the college where she's a professor, Middlebury. But even before Murray arrived, it was clear there was serious opposition to having him speak. Murray is often considered a conservative or a libertarian author. Some, including many on Middlebury's campus, believe his work is racist. And on the night of their scheduled discussion, Allison Stanger and Charles Murray were met with rowdy protests. The fact of the matter is I don't really remember um, much of it. But we were taken out of the, the, um, the hall and confronted this mob of angry people, some of whom were in masks, and they were shoving and jostling. They were, their target was Charles Murray. And I was a little bit behind him. And it kind of intensified. It looked like he was going to fall to the ground. And he's, he's at the time, was a 74-year-old man. So I just sort of did what any decent human being would do when you see a 74-year-old man on the verge of falling to the ground. I grabbed him by the arm. So I took his arm, and when I did that, that's when it all turned on me. After the confrontation, as she explained last year on C-SPAN, Stanger thought she was fine. But she wasn't. She had a concussion. She had trouble driving, trouble thinking. What happened at Middlebury quickly made headlines, which seemed to shock Stanger, even when she looked back at what had happened months later. My students know I'm a Democrat. I think it's even all the more important to engage with someone like Charles Murray precisely because it shows them that I believe in a free and fair exchange of views in my classroom, which you have to have for liberal education to take place. But the story of why the Murray protest occurred at Middlebury tells us a lot about how culture is changing. It brings into play new dynamics on college campuses, the evolution of parenting, and our current political environment. Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist specializing in morality. He's a co-author of the new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation of Kids for Failure. And in it, he explains his view of how and why we're undergoing this evolution. He's also a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. John, welcome. Thank you, Kara. Good to be here with you. So uh, you teach on a college campus, just like Allison uh, Sanger does. Do you remember the first time that you started to think about, you know, how culture was changing and first started to think like, wow, I, I perceive something different here in terms of like people being very sensitive to stuff that was going on or, um, you know, maybe being, at least in your view, kind of overly willing to shame people for, for their beliefs. Yes, it, it all started in the 2013 to 2014 academic year when I taught things I've been teaching for a long time and students started objecting and writing to the dean to complain about things that I said or images I showed 
in my lectures. Like I, I talked about the Milgram experiment where people seem to be willing to shock someone to death. And I used it to explain how the Nazis could have done what they did. And a student thought that I was somehow pardoning the Nazis, and she wrote to the dean. Hmm. I showed an image to illustrate weakness of the will. I showed an image from the Odyssey uh, in which Ulysses ties himself to the mast, and uh, the, the sirens are climbing up on the ship. And since sirens are topless, as they traditionally were, a student objected and thought that this was sexist of me to, to show a 19th century painting. So it just strange stuff started happening in that academic year. So when Greg Lukianoff came to me that summer, the following summer, and said, John, strange stuff is happening, and I have a theory about why, I said, oh, my God, this makes sense. This is the best idea I've heard in a long time. And, and Greg Lukianoff is your co-author, uh, is the co-author of this book and a, a First Amendment lawyer. Right. That's right. And he's the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And the whole idea for the book was his. I just came along for the psychology. What's interesting, too, is that the idea of free speech on campus being a lightning rod is not new. So, like, if you go back to the 1960s at Berkeley, very famously, right, there was a lot of discussion about that free speech should be allowed and that the administration was trying to shut it down. But... As you point out, the script has flipped here because it used to be that students were really annoyed that the administration was trying to clamp down on free speech. And now it is much more students who are saying this person should really not come speak on campus. That's not appropriate. Like they are the people saying, I don't know if everything should be allowed to be said on campus. Well, that's right. And so that's what that's what's new. I mean, as you say, there are cycles of, of political protest on campus. And some people say, well, student protest is normal. And to some extent it is. But what's new in this cycle uh, there was another cycle in between it in the late 80s, early 90s. There was another cycle of, sort of what, you know, what the right started calling the political correctness madness. What's new in this cycle is the idea that students are fragile, that they can be damaged by words, that words are violence. And even though it isn't usually students saying, I am damaged, I am traumatized if Charles Murray speaks, it's usually students saying, my friends will be, members of certain groups will be. So that's why we called it vindictive protectiveness, because it is, it is in some ways morally motivated. It is a desire to protect, but it's a desire to protect by attacking, by demonizing, by shouting people down, and even on a few occasions by physical violence to prevent people from speaking. Do you think that what has changed on college campuses has to do with the campuses themselves? But people aren't, uh, you know, people don't spend very long in college, right? Um, is it because people are arriving to college as different people than they were 10 or 20 years ago? Or is it because something happens to them in the short time that they're at college uh, that changes them? So you have to break the problem into several several different um, one major reason uh, is because we basically clamped down on play. We stopped letting kids play independently in the 1990s, roughly. Um, kids, you, you know, anybody who, who grew up uh, before the 1990s or late 80s spent a lot of time outside with their friends unsupervised. So they had a lot of practice in play and negotiation and what, what do you do if someone gets hurt? But in part because of a huge overreaction to the crime wave and for a variety of other reasons, just as the crime wave was ending in the 1990s, America developed a new norm that if a kid is found outside and there's no adult, the parents can be arrested. Now, it doesn't happen that often, but it happens and enough to scare the heck out of, out of parents. 
So you can't, you know, kids can't go play in a park anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because they're always supervised, they don't cultivate the skills of problem uh, negotiation that they used to have. So there are a variety, for a variety of reasons, the kids coming into college have been basically overprotected. It's not their fault. It's it's the grown-ups' fault. So that's half the story. Okay. Um, so the other half, oh, actually, okay, let's, let's bring it to three. All right. Okay. What's happening to the kids, there's what's right. happening to the campuses, and then there's what's happening to the country. Okay. On the country, uh, we've had rising polarization. The left and the right have always disliked each other, mm-hmm. but it was actually pretty mild in the 70s and into the 80s. It's only in the 90s that the two parties become really uh, sorted into a, a liberal party and a conservative party. And once these parties are relatively pure politically, the people in them really hate the other side a lot more. And of course, the, the spark, you know, one of the sparks um, is the Black Lives Matter uh, um, movement, which of course was the, the spark being those horrible videos that we all saw. So you have renewed, very passionate student activism um, coming in the wake of those videos in, you know, in 2014, uh, plus or minus. Um, onto a campus that is much more politically uh, um, active and passionate in a country that's much more divided with students who don't have as much practice uh, dealing with conflict. And boom, everything blows up in the fall of 2015 at Halloween. Okay, so tell me uh, what happened at Halloween and how did that connect to this theory that, as you were talking about, uh, you were developing about uh, how culture was changing? Um, Greg and I wrote an article about what we thought was going on on campus and how campuses were teaching some uh, very bad ideas. And that article came out in August of 2015, before there were any real student protests. And then in the fall of 2015, there's a wave of of student protests beginning at uh, the University of Missouri and then Yale. Um, And it's at Yale especially there uh, where there was guidance over – the university was telling students how they should dress for Halloween. And and a professor wrote wrote a a very – you know, she's a developmental psychologist, and she wrote a letter to her students, really treating them as adults and saying, well, let's think about this. You know, can we do this for ourselves? Should we be getting this guidance? Um, and some students got very upset, and it blew up. And the guidance was, I think the guidance was essentially, don't wear any Halloween costumes that could be construed as, it was from the university, from Yale, don't wear Halloween costumes that could be construed as offensive to other people, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And this is happening at a lot of schools. There's just increasing guidance and control. And so Erica Christakis, who's a developmental psychologist with a wonderful book called The Importance of Being Little, um, she's already concerned about how we've been depriving kids of autonomy. We don't let them make decisions. We don't let them handle their own affairs. We're so intrusive. We're overprotective. And here she is at Yale. At Yale, the deans, the administrators are overprotecting, guiding, telling them, here's how you can have relationships. Here's how you can talk. Here's, you know. So she she said, oh, my God, enough is enough. So she writes this letter, and it's available online. It's a, it's a very thoughtful letter. And it's fine if students disagree with it. They could easily have argued against it. But this is, the, this is a hallmark of the new culture. And again, this is not about most kids. Most kids are normal, the same as they've ever been. Mm-hmm. But what happens is if, if students are upset about something, the, there's a new dynamic where they are able to protest using social media to organize that they're able to protest and make demands in ways that no one is willing to stand up against. Or rather, I should say, people are reluctant to stand up. There's a fearfulness uh, to oppose them. So it's not that students have lost their minds. It's that certain forms of behavior that were completely unacceptable five years ago are now generally treated as acceptable. And it leads to a lot of intimidation and fear among students, faculty, and administrators. 
it seems like, and I'm going to get into some electoral politics here, um, but it seems like some of the controversies that started to bubble up in 2013, 2014, maybe even 2015, uh, kind of before the era of Donald Trump, or at least before the era of Donald Trump as a serious major uh, presidential candidate, that those things in some ways then seem to insert themselves into the election. So I'm going to play you a clip from... um, Trump when he was a candidate. This is from a Republican primary debate. And Megyn Kelly, who then worked at Fox News, talked about some of his comments about women, calling them slobs, calling them pigs. And she asked, does this sound like the temperament of the person that we should elect as president? Here is what Donald Trump said. I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. I've been... I've been challenged by so many people, and I don't frankly have time for total political correctness. And to be honest with you, this country doesn't have time either. Jonathan Haidt, what's really striking there is that the phrase that got the applause is political correctness. And I just wonder how you see the story you're talking about predating Trump factoring in to the election itself. Sure. Well, going back to the wave of the wave of campus activism and uh, in the 19, early 1990s uh, with protests about the, the college curriculum and, and diversifying it. Back then is when the right-wing press and Fox News first began to gear up mm. uh, to fight political correctness on campus. So they've always, the right has always loved to hate universities, which have leaned left for you know most of the last century and into this one. And this is a staple. If you watch Fox News yeah. a lot... Yeah. What happens on universities and like the disinvitation of the Steve Bannons mm-hmm. and the Ann Coulters, that is a – that is meat and potatoes on Fox News. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. So that's been going on for a long time. And, you know, it's not like it's without warrant. I mean the clips they show are not faked. I mean, the, you know, the people on campus really do say some some foolish things. That's been going on a long time. And then what happened in the wake of all of the very – a dramatic protest that began in the fall of 2015 is now there was all this really dramatic footage of students cursing out professors and doing all sorts of things that were great television. They were, you know, red meat for the right-wing anti-university group. So from a sociological perspective, is there a moral panic on the right? The answer is yes. And this is what people on the left are always saying. Oh, it's just a moral panic because you can point to a right-wing coverage and say, see, it's just ginned up by the press. But the thing is, the fact that there is a moral panic and the, the right is trying to amplify it doesn't mean that there isn't something going on, that there isn't a real problem. Um, I talk with a lot of university presidents and administrators, and they pretty much are all living in a state of fear. That is, as one said, universities are becoming ungovernable. Uh, that's for a variety of reasons. It's not just the, the new dynamic of the students. But part of it is that, that blubs can happen over anything, just uh, the kind of food served in the dining hall, a joke that someone tells. So things are changing not on all campuses but on many. And the fact that there is a moral panic on the right does not mean that there is also not a lot going on that is making people feel censored or shut up. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jonathan Haidt. He's a professor of ethical leadership at NYU's Business School and a co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Um, You argue that speakers should not be invited to campus if, like, all they really want to do is provoke a reaction, if all they want to do is humiliate the university – 
I just wonder what the yardstick is. Like, should anybody be able to come to campus and say pretty much anything? Is there any legitimacy to to the idea that, gee, I don't really know that I want this person to come speak on campus? Um, I personally don't think so. I think Greg might give a different answer. He He's more focused on free speech and the First Amendment. The way I think about this is, as a professor and a researcher, what we do on campus requires certain norms that are different from the public square. And we have to keep ourselves free from orthodoxy. Our work suffers if we see ourselves as activists who know the conclusion in advance and are just trying to prove it. So my focus is on how do we create the special conditions under which people who are very different from each other, we we value diversity for a reason, how can we create the very special conditions under which diverse people can come together and each one is biased, each one engages in post hoc reasoning, each one reasons based on emotions, but magically, if we get things right, magically we cancel out each other's confirmation biases, we challenge each other, and if we have norms of civility and a sense of community, almost by magic, truth emerges where nobody had, might have had it before. So what happens? You know, are things getting hotter in universities? Are things changing? Just... We've seen all this controversy. I just wonder what comes of it. So what I've noticed in the last year, um, what I've noticed from the beginning in 2015 with the protests, is that leadership at universities was very weak. The university leaders often, a good leader would say, I acknowledge your concerns. You're right. Let's talk. On the other hand, you should not be cursing out professors. You should not be giving me a list of uh, uh, an ultimatum with a threat. Mm-hmm. That's not how we do things here. Uh, and to his credit, the president of Oberlin actually did that. And then, of course, the students backed down and they met with him at office hours or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was very rare. Almost always the presidents of universities said, oh, my God, we're so sorry. You're right. Everything you say about our university is right. You know, here's $50 million for more diversity training. Now, diversity training doesn't, doesn't well, you know, as far as we can tell, it's not, there's not a lot of evidence that it has the effects it's supposed to have. So the university leadership is doing what corporate leadership does. Does. Namely, they'll they'll do things for CYA. They'll do things for mm-hmm. to show that they're doing something, but not it's not something that's likely to actually help the problem. So that's how things played out the first year or two. But what I'm seeing now is that whenever I talk to a dean of any sort, it's clear, wow, their job has gotten a lot harder in the last year or two. And they're looking for answers. They're looking for help. And so um, I think there's a common understanding now that we have to address both the, the demands and the requests for better inclusion of, of racial and other minorities. We have to address that and the, the speech issues, the freedom of inquiry issues. We have to address them all at the same time. Otherwise, we have the sort of a, a, a one element of the left saying, no, it's all about racism and inclusion. Then we have one element of the right or some Republican students saying, no, no, it's all about free speech. And that's just, you know, if you, pit, if, if you think that those two are incompatible or opposites, then it, it's just eternal. I mean, we're in big trouble. So I, I think there's a, an increased willingness to work on all the problems at the same time and recognize that we have a culture problem in many universities. Jonathan Haidt is a professor at NYU Stern School of Business, and he's the co-author of the new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. John, thank you so much. My pleasure, Kara. Thanks for having me. website. We've got C-SPAN's hour-long interview with Allison Stanger, the professor from Middlebury, who you heard from at the beginning, which is fascinating all the way through. We've also got more about the Yale Halloween incident, so you can read the primary documents for yourself. 
and we've assembled some op-eds and essays of people who do not diagnose the situation in the same way as Jonathan Haidt. That's all at innovationhub.org. 